John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. The glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made, them no made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. I wonder how many of you have ever walked into a room and interrupted somebody praying. It can feel quite embarrassing, can't it? Especially for us Brits, we're not used to perhaps doing Christianity, our spiritual life. 
in each other's lives as much as other nationalities are, where it would be very normal. But for us, it can feel quite awkward. We know the privilege of prayer. Many of you just now have been praying, knowing that the God of heaven and earth loves to hear his people pray. And to him and to him alone, we can share the deepest burdens and struggles of our hearts. And if you're in the midst of that prayer and somebody comes in, it can feel really, really awkward. And perhaps you have a similar feeling as we start studying this incredibly precious chapter in John 17. This is one of the most spiritually intimate moments in the Bible. Uh, One pastor calls this the center of all the sanctities. It's where the last five chapters of John's gospel have been moving us towards. Back in John 12, Jesus speaks his last word to the Jewish crowd. His public teaching ministry is done. We saw last week that Jesus has finished preparing his disciples for his departure. All of that teaching from the upper room from chapters 13 to 16 is over. What is left now is the Son of God speaking to God the Father. And this prayer is absolutely amazing. It is a window for us to see into the heart of the Son of God in this context. Knowing that he is about to be arrested, crucified And take the penalty for our sin. Knowing that his death is about to come. The son of God knows all of that. And this is our opportunity to overhear that prayer. We know that Jesus knows that all of this is happening. Because verse 1. He tells us again. The hour has come. And if you've been with us as we've worked through John's gospel. You've seen that phrase again and again. For, For a long time. The first 11 chapters. The hour has not come. Then we got to chapter 12. You've got the Jewish leaders rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got some Gentiles suddenly appear on the scene saying, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, now the hour has come. This is it. Verse 1 is the last time in John's gospel there is a reference to the hour. Because it is upon Jesus. And now he consecrates himself. There's all sorts of different ways of trying to entitle this prayer. I don't I wouldn't perhaps want to lose sleep over it. Perhaps your Bible says it's the high priestly prayer. There's reasons why that goes back a long time in history. It's a helpful description. You could also describe it as a prayer of consecration. Here's Jesus before this event consecrating himself, his immediate disciples, and all disciples, which includes you and me, for service to God. Now we're only going to look at the first five verses this morning. But the great thing we need to see, as we focus not on a prayer about ourselves, we'll we'll get, Lord willing, to the prayers for the disciples and for the prayers of Jesus for us as his people in the weeks to come. But what I want you to see here isn't just the immediate, I'm going to pray like Jesus. Because in one sense, we can take some very practical lessons just from these five verses where Jesus is only thinking about himself and praying to his father in that moment before the cross. And there are some lessons we can learn. We can learn, for instance, about the priority of God's glory over and above everything else. We can see Jesus' example about praying for others when we're faced with enormous Challenges in our lives. All of those things are good lessons that we can learn from this prayer. But that's not the focus 
in the first five verses. The focus is for us to be encouraged by how the Son of God speaks to God the Father before he goes to the cross to save us. To see a window into the heart of God. To see something of the love of God. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Just looking at those five verses at the beginning. I think John in recording it and Jesus in praying it. Actually structure these verses really deliberately. To show us what we need to see. And the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 and 5. Is Jesus prays that the Father would glorify the Son. By displaying his Divine majesty, the divine majesty of the Son. It's one of the most important themes to the whole of John's gospel, the identity of Jesus. We saw it at the very beginning in the prologue, where John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've seen it all the way through the amazing I am statements in the gospel. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because only I am the Son of God. It's a question of identity. If you can remember, all the way back to the beginning of our series, we jumped to the end of the book. And we saw in John 20, Jesus, uh, John writes, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The identity of Jesus is everything. And it's key that we see that because in the way that Jesus prays, we're reminded that in some ways we pray similarly. This prayer begins, Father, the hour has come. How does Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven. But Jesus himself never prayed that prayer for himself. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Really, it's a model prayer because the Son of God never had to pray, forgive us our sins. He's the sinless one. It's the only way he could ever have gone to the cross. There is a difference between the way Jesus prays to the Father and the way we pray to the Father. You you see the same thing when we think about adoption. All the way through John's gospel, perhaps especially in John 15, when you think about Jesus being the true vine, unlike the old vine of the Old Testament, he's the one who, if you are grafted into him, you have a new identity. You are now an adopted son or daughter of God. You are a co-heir with Christ. But we've been adopted in. We've been grafted in. He is the true vine. He is the Son of God. And you see the same thing when we get to the resurrection in a few chapters' time. You've got Jesus appearing to Mary, telling her, I have risen, now go and tell the disciples, and I'm going to come to them too. And there's a little line where Jesus says, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to our Father and our God. I think he's just gently reminding us of the difference between us. Lest we forget in the way that we think about our Savior that he is one of us, which he fully is, as he is fully man, he is also fully God. He is 
one of the persons of the Trinity who has existed for all eternity. That's why in verse 1 he can pray, glorify your Son. That's why in verse 5 he prays, now Father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's a sonship that we will never know. When you read in your Bible that you are sons of God and that you have all of the privileges of sonship, it's not a sexist terminology. It's a way to remember that in the Greco-Roman world, the son received everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. As you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive everything from the Father that is his. But there is still this enormous difference between us and the Son of God. We know him as Jesus, who was born as a baby to Mary 2,000 years ago. But the Son of God has existed with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity past. Now, there are limitless ways you can think about how precious that truth is. One is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit didn't create the world because they were lonely. And we look around and see all of our need, all of our relational need, and you see the fact that we have been made by God and that he loves the world. You might misput the pieces together and think, the reason that we exist is that God's a God who is just desperate to love somebody. Well, here's Jesus saying, before the world began, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have delighted in each other's presence and relationship for all eternity. And that helps us understand how we hold together Jesus' two requests, verse 1, verse 5, that the Father would glorify him. Now you've got in verse 5, Jesus explains that the way this glory would be experienced is for him to receive the glory that he had in eternity past. Now, we have to be really clear in how we put that together. Jesus never stopped being fully God. He became fully man. But he did not surrender his divinity. Yet, he did empty himself of some of the many blessings and honor that are his as the Son of God. He didn't ever stop being God, but he voluntarily gave up some of the blessings and the honor that are his as the Son of God. So what does Paul tell us in Philippians 2? Though being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, here's the phrase, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And both of those things are involved at the same time. Part of Jesus becoming fully man is him taking on our humanity. But there is another element too. And, and the, if you've got a New American Standard Bible, another version of the Bible, it translates the Greek a little bit more literally. It, was, it says in that verse, he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. Just let that sink in. The eternal Son of God willingly emptied himself, surrendered, gave up some of the blessings and the honor and the glory that have for all eternity been his in order to rescue you 
if you're a Christian this morning. And here we're reminded in this opening verse, in verse 5, of, of how much Jesus gave up. He's asking the Father to glorify him in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. If I can put it this way, Jesus is asking the Father to reinstate to him the glory that he willingly gave up in order to become our substitute. But he is not asking the Father to escape from his humanity. When the Son of God became fully man, he took upon himself human flesh for all eternity. There is now at the right hand of the Father a resurrected but a physical Son of God who will for all eternity future have his perfect resurrected body. It will forever be a picture for every single person in all eternity looking forward of the cost of our salvation that the Son of God still is fully man. So Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son not just, verse 5, because of his identity and his nature as the eternal Son of God, but also, verses 1, and we'll get to 2 in a minute, because of his work in saving us from our sin. Now, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Hold the thought of what Jesus did. All I want you to see for the moment is what Jesus will do with this glory. So he's saying to the Father, glorify me because that was the glory I had in all eternity past for I am the eternal son of God and because of what I am about to do but what is he Jesus going to do with that glory that I may glorify you son of God is not saying well I used to live the good life was prepared to slum it for a while but now I'd quite like the good life back Jesus is saying, I have willingly emptied myself to become fully man. Now I ask for the glory of my eternal divinity to be given back that I may glorify you. No part of any of this in Jesus' goal is on himself. It's all towards bringing glory to God through emptying himself and giving himself up for men and women who never wanted to become Christians until he save them. This is the the self-giving and sacrificially loving God of the Bible. And there is no other God like him. If you're exploring Christianity, if you're thinking about whether you could believe Christianity or, or whether you want to believe another faith, can I ask you to ask these questions of any other faith you may be looking at? How personal is the God or gods that you may otherwise be thinking about? How sacrificial are they willing to be? What would they be willing to do in order to secure your eternal salvation? Because this living, true God of the Bible is perfectly personal, completely sacrificial, and has given his own son in order to redeem us lost people. This is our hope. This is the God of the Bible upon whom we build our life and our confidence. 
But not only is Jesus the eternal son of God, he uses his power and his authority for our good. And that's what verses 2 and 4 are showing us. This is how Jesus is going to bring glory to the Father. Second point, the son glorifies the Father through the work of salvation. Now, we lose a little bit of just how key the connection is between verses 1 and 2 because in our Bible, verse 2 begins with the word for. It would be more helpful if it was translated as just as. And I was really helped this week as Don Carson used this little diagram to show me just how the link between verses 1 and 2 is so strong. So in all eternity past, verse 2, The Father granted all authority to the Son over all people. Why? In order that, end of verse 2, he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. That's how the Son glorifies the Father. So look at verse 4. He brought the Father glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. That's the work of the cross. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the Son of God stepping into time and space to take upon himself all of the punishment for all of the sin of every single man, woman, boy, and girl who will believe and trust in him. Which means, go back through verses 2 and 1 together. Jesus was given in all eternity past all power and authority by the Father over all people so that all who the Father gives to him can be given by Jesus eternal life. So that, back into verse 1, the Son may bring glory to the Father. You see how all of this God-centered plan of salvation is directing glory to the Father. Jesus' eyes are so fixed on using all of that authority to save for all eternity all those the Father has given to him, that all of his glory is going to be directed to the Father. And that is how verse 2 encourages you and me in our prayer and our evangelism. There is a way that you could read verse 2 and think, well, Jesus says that the only people who will be saved are those the Father has given to him. And I don't know who they are. So I might as well just sit back and pray that God would save whoever he's decided because that's the only way that they're going to be saved. And it leaves you thinking, my prayers aren't important. My evangelism doesn't matter. My witness isn't significant. How I share the gospel to others isn't a big deal. God's going to save the ones he's going to save. But that's flipping the whole verse up on its head. What does the wonderful truth that God has already given to the Son, those who will believe in him, mean for us in our experience? It means that in our evangelism, the conversion of our friends and family who don't yet know and love Jesus doesn't rest on our ability to convince them. It means that when we're praying for people, as we're sharing the gospel with them, which we want to do as faithfully as we can and as clearly as we can and help them see Jesus as consistently as we can, The way they come to faith isn't by us convincing them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's by him breaking into their life through our testimony. But we do so knowing God's the one who's going to do it. So you don't be discouraged by the sovereignty of God in evangelism. You suddenly think there's a reason it will happen. 
because God himself can give eternal life and forgive sins, just as he's done in my life and yours. Verse 2 is meant to free your heart and think, God will save his people. That's what Jesus has already told us. If you have a Bible, you go back to John 6, and there's this powerful invitation from Jesus in verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I shall raise them up at the last day. If you're not yet a Christian, that is how you can become one today. By looking to Jesus, by faith, trusting his work at the cross and believing in him. And you'll have eternal life. You might, well, what's eternal life? Excellent question. Jesus tells us in verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent third and final thing we need to see this morning is that through the Son, we can truly know the Father and have eternal life. The greatest blessing of the Christian life is not the hope of unending tomorrows for all eternity. The greatest hope is that we now and for all eternity really know God. Knowing Jesus isn't just the route to eternal life. Don't think of trusting Jesus and believing in Jesus as the ticket that is going to get you to whatever final destination you have in mind, which is, I don't know, an eternal future of insert whatever think you would really be brilliant to have for all eternity. And Jesus is just the way to get there. Jesus isn't the ticket to the final destination. Knowing Jesus and the Father, and the Spirit is the final destination. There is nothing more glorious than that. And it brings us back to another one of these massive themes that are woven all the way through John's Gospel, especially in the upper room, but perhaps all the way through the Gospel. John explains how Jesus fulfills the old covenant and brings in the new And he does so here. We we saw back in the old covenant, Hosea warned that God's people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. That doesn't mean they hadn't memorized the Torah. It doesn't mean they couldn't remember all of the other teachings that the Jewish leaders had given them. It meant that there were so many Jews who were part of the old covenant community who didn't personally know the Lord. And for that faithful remnant who did, how did they know him? It was through an intermediary, it was through a middleman, a prophet or a priest or a king, someone who would fully experience the blessing, the power, the spirit of God, and through them they would understand something more of God's word and what it meant to be a faithful believer in the old covenant. But it was the minority in terms of the remnant, and it was through a middle person. Here comes Jesus. 
And he changes all of that in the new covenant, which isn't just a bolt out of blue. Nobody was expecting it. It's what God promised in the old covenant would be the experience of those in the new covenant. So you get to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. Using that language to refer to the people of God after the new covenant has begun. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what Jesus accomplishes at the cross. This is what the resurrection gives us confidence that is now done. This is the new covenant that he has brought in as his spirit now fills all people. His sacrifice deals with our sin, which means every single Christian personally knows the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And that knowledge isn't just head knowledge. Please don't think, the only thing I know about Christianity is you're supposed to know a lot, especially if you come to a church like Emmanuel. Sermons are long. Everybody's been a Christian since they were like three. Everybody's memorized most of the Bible. If I've got to be a Christian, it's like 15 A-levels I have to take before I can be a Christian. That's not what knowledge is. The Hebrews use the term know I meant to know a person for yourself, truly, a living relationship. I was reminded of that this week because my dad retired. After 42 years of paid employment, he has done his last day, well, maybe, his last day at the office. And my sister is really, really creative. And she very kindly collated all sorts of pictures and and stories and and some stuff that the grandkids had done, all sorts of things, and put it together in an album so that my dad would have this gift that we could give him so he could reflect on the 42 years through which God had faithfully given him employment and the way his hard work had provided for me and my sister and our families and many, many other families besides. Now, you could say, looking at this album, that we know our dad when I was date of birth and how he met my mum and how he got his job that he had for that whole 42-year period, one job. I could tell you all sorts of stories about that, but that's not what tells you that I know my dad. Knowing him means I know his love for me even though I often, most of the time, didn't deserve it. Knowing him means I know how his character, because I've known him, has shaped me in huge numbers of ways. Knowing him means I know how of all of that hard work throughout his life, he has sacrificially given and blessed me and my sister, and our families, and many other families besides. 
That's what it means to know your dad, my dad. That's a tiny comparison, but do you see how it reflects something of what Jesus is saying here? What does it mean to know God? Like, really, it's not an exam. It's a lived relationship that in an infinitely more powerful way actually shapes who you are. Not just in terms of bringing you into existence, but actually transforming your personality and giving you life and breath. And here is this incredible description of seeing what it means to be a Christian. It means that you know that even though you were born an enemy, you have now been saved. Great. Didn't perhaps really think that I was an enemy. And what does it mean to be saved? To be born an enemy means that you are born into God's world, rightfully expecting that he will hold you accountable for your life. To be rescued from that eternal future means his son has emptied himself, has willingly chosen to forego some of those blessings and glories that are eternally his and will eternally and now are his for all eternity future to come into the world and die upon the cross so that you would know, not about, you would know him personally. Only Jesus can do that for you. Because only he's the eternal son of God. Only Jesus can earn that for you. Salvation is by works. Please make sure that is clear in your head. But not yours. His. And only his can earn your salvation. You can't earn it. That's what John Knox knew. When John was dying on the 24th of November in 1572... He was surrounded by his wife, Margaret, and his dear friend, Richard. And and they had their Bibles at the bedside with him. And they were reading different scriptures to him. And John looked up at Margaret and said, Go. Go to where I put the first anchor of my soul. And she turned to John 17. And began to read, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. And on she read. Have you put an anchor of your soul in Jesus' prayer in John 17? Here is a window into the heart of the Son of God to show you what he would willingly Surrender in order to save you, to bring glory to the Father. That's what John knew. There was an anchor for his soul in John 17. I trust and pray that there is an anchor of your soul in the truths of this chapter too. That however hard the season of life may be for you at the moment, however unsettled you may be, however many times you turn on the telly and just start crying because it's just too much. Circumstances at home, circumstances in the world, struggle in your own sanctification, that longing for Jesus to return and for it all to be finished. I hope in the face of all of those storms in your life, there is an anchor of your soul 
fixed in John 17. So that you know, you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent.